I think we can get distracted by the holiday sales and the parties and the celebrations of the season. But have you asked yourself yet in this month, why are we celebrating? Well, here it is. Here's the answer. Today's the day we set aside to remember the birth of our Savior. The fact is that the second member of the Trinity, God, very God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. But why? Why did the Son of God take on human flesh? Why did he even have to be born at all? Wasn't there some other way that God could save sinners other than sending his Son to become a man and die on a cross? Well, we'll see that the author of Hebrews answers those very questions. So follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 9. We'll read down to verse 18. All right? Hebrews 2, verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Verse 14, therefore... Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore... He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted." And we read through that quickly, and we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking those verses, but I want to draw your attention to verse 17. Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things. Literally, it means he was obligated. You see, in God's perfect plan of redemption, the incarnation was not optional. This truth would have been such a huge encouragement to the readers of this original letter, the Hebrews, right? If you aren't familiar with the book of Hebrews, it's written to Jewish believers who are tempted to go back to Judaism because of the Roman persecution at the time. They were tempted to deny Christ and to abandon the truth. And you see, if you read Hebrews, one of the themes that you'll find is that Christ is supreme. Christ is better He is the king of kings. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to the angels. He's superior to the Old Testament priesthood. He's superior to the sacrificial system. 
And the author reminds his readers that salvation can only be obtained through the once for all perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So why would you ever go back to the old ways? Why would you ever go back there? And so the author, he urges those Jewish believers, stay the course, press on, run the race, keep your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. And so what if, that's the title of this morning's sermon, what if, what if Christmas never happened? What if Christmas never happened? It'd be like the, the film, It's a Wonderful Life, where George Bailey sees what would happen if he had never been born. And so this morning, let's imagine what would happen if Jesus never had come to this earth. What if there was no Christmas? And you may not think of Hebrews chapter 2 as the Christmas story, but it provides us with such a profound theology of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And in fact, his incarnation is repeated three times explicitly in this passage. It's explicit in verse 9 when it says, Christ was made for a little while lower than the angels. And then again, it's explicit in verse 14 where it says, he partook of flesh and blood. And again, in verse 17, we looked at it where it says he had to be made like his brethren. So the implications of the incarnation are present everywhere in this text. And that's why it's especially fitting for us this morning on Christmas day. And so If you're following along in your notes, you'll see we have three points this morning. And I want to show you three reasons why Christmas had to happen. Three reasons why Christmas had to happen. In verse 9 through 13, we'll first see, if Christ had never been born, there would be no salvation from sin. If Christ had never been born, there would be no salvation from sin. Without Christmas, there's no redemption No justification, no atonement, no salvation at all. And in verse 9 it says that we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. The author here, he quotes, he's quoting Psalm 8, which the author already had referenced back in verse 7 of chapter 2. And it speaks of the fact that for a short time, for a little bit, The Son of God had left heaven, he took on flesh, and he dwelt among us here on earth. And the psalmist is, he's speaking of Christ's humiliation and condescension coming down to earth. And the Apostle Paul, he explains it this way in Philippians chapter 2, that he, that being Jesus, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, And being made in the likeness of men. And of course, after his uh, death and resurrection, the, the Lord Jesus ascended in victory to the right hand of the Father. And he makes Christ's victory, the author of Hebrews. He makes it so clear in verse 9 with the next phrase that because of his faithful suffering and death, he was crowned with glory and honor. And if you look at it, contained here in verse 9, we have the incarnation, his glorification, his exaltation, and his ascension. But why? Why did he come? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, at the end of verse 9, it tells us, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That really 
is the point, right? Christmas is only meaningful in the light of Jesus' suffering on Good Friday and the triumph of his resurrection, which we'll celebrate on Easter. That's, that's what gives Christmas significance. Church family, Jesus came to die. He came so that through his death, he might give life to everyone who believes in him. He is the substitutionary sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You and I, as sinners, lawbreakers, and rebels, we deserved wrath and judgment and condemnation, but but the lawgiver himself came to fulfill the requirements of his own law. And then he suffered that penalty which we deserved. All of this, all of this took place in order that we, who were formerly his enemies, might be reconciled to him through the cross. And all of it was made possible because God the Son, Jesus Christ, became for a little while lower than the angels. He was born as a man so that he could die for mankind. Now the author here, he continues to build on the benefits of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. We see that through his substitutionary death, Jesus brought salvation. For, verse 10, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, that's a reference to God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. The word perfect there uh, can just mean to complete, to complete. And of course, we know that Christ was already perfect. And we see that, we see that by his humanity, by submitting to the will of the Father, right? And he's obedient in his sufferings and his death. But additionally, the author of Hebrews, he'll reiterate again later in chapter 4 that Christ, he did all this all the while being perfect. He was sinless. And we also know that through his death, Christ completed the redemptive purposes of God, becoming a perfect high priest who is able to cleanse the sins of his people through his own sacrifice. And so he's rightly called then the author of salvation, the initiator, our captain, our Lord. Notice also in verse 10 that through his death, the Lord Jesus Christ brings many sons to glory. Many sons to glory. The one unique son of God came down from heaven to earth so that many sons and daughters of Adam could become the children of God who will then inherit eternal glory. And so verse 11 through 13, it's going to build on this theme of our sanctification and our adoption made possible only through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. For both he who sanctifies, that's a reference to Christ, and those who are sanctified, that's a reference to believers, they're all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Do you see the familial language in those verses? Here the author, he's citing Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. And he's illustrating the reality of the adoption that we experience through Christ into the family of God. 
all of that made possible by the Son of God who died on a cross that we might be heirs of God and also co-heirs with Christ himself. See, the Christ, Jesus Christ, is the Son, and he's the Son by divine right. Just because of who he is, his nature, he is the Son of God. But we, we become sons and daughters through adoption because of what Christ has done for us. And what a glorious reality that is to contemplate that Christ took on flesh so that he might die for those whom he would save, bringing them into his own family, adopting them as children. And so if we take verses 10 through 13 as a whole, and we see the, just a few aspects of salvation, right? We see justification through his substitution, adoption into the family of God, sanctification that we have made possible through Christ. Also, our future glorification, that he will bring us to glory. And that is our hope. Do you see it all there? Justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. And it's all predicated on the truth of verse 9, that for a little while, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. So if Jesus, if he had never been born, there would be no salvation. There would be no substitutionary sacrifice. There would be no justification, no sanctification, no adoption into the family of God. No future glorification. So these elements, are, they're included in, this, in these verses all because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So to celebrate Christmas then is to celebrate the, real, the uh, reality that salvation was made available through the person and work of Jesus Christ and him alone. That's why we celebrate Christmas. The author of Hebrews, he'll give us a second reason why Christmas had to happen. In verses 14 and 15, if Christ had not been born, there would be no victory over death. If Christ had never been born, there's no victory over death. Look at verses 14 and 15. Since the children, that's a reference to human beings, and in particular believers. So since the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, since we're human beings, he, that's Jesus Christ, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That's the Lord Jesus Christ becoming a human that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all of their lives. This means that he who was sinless became a man, and through his death, those who were sinful might be liberated. They might be freed from death itself. You know, it's staggering to count or even research the amount of people that die every day. Over 183,000 people die every day and they enter into eternity. And we've been confronted, right, the last three years of our own mortality. Our world fears death. And those who live apart from Jesus Christ have good reason to fear death. But believers, we don't fear death. In fact, we should never fear death because how does the Apostle Paul say it in 1 Corinthians 15? Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's almost like he's taunting death. Christ is the victor. 
These verses here in Hebrews chapter 2, they exude that same confidence. We don't need to fear death because Jesus has conquered death for all those who put their trust in him. And you'll notice again that the emphasis here is on on the reason for the incarnation in verse 14. Here's why. In order to save sinful men from the deadly consequences of their sin. That's why we celebrate Christmas. The son became a man. He became like us. He became human in order that he might save us from the consequences of our own guilt. For by his death and suffering, he defeated sin and Satan and eternal suffering. You, got, you have to see it. That before you ever came to Christ, you are slaves. Galatians 4, 3 tells us that you are slaves to this world. Galatians 4, 8 says you are slaves to idolatry. Romans 6, 17 says you are slaves to sin. Romans 8, 15 says you are slaves to fear. And then here in Hebrews chapter 2, we're specifically slaves to the fear of death. And death for the unbeliever is a thing of fear. Right? And we know why. We know why. Hebrews chapter 9, 27 says it's appointed for men to die once and then comes the judgment. So those who do not know Christ ought to fear. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. I'll quote him here. He says, we never find Adam afraid of God while he was in paradise obedient. But no sooner than when he took the forbidden fruit that he hid himself in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin makes miserable cowards of us all. See, the man who once could hold a delightful conversation with his maker, now dreading to hear his maker's voice and sneaking around the garden like a felon who knows his guilt and is afraid to meet the officers of justice. Beloved, in order to remove this dreaded nightmare of slavish fear from the heart of humanity, our Lord Jesus Christ took on flesh. Angels came to proclaim the good news of his coming about the incarnate Christ. And the very first note of their song was a foretaste of sweet result of coming, uh, of his coming to all those who would receive him. Do you remember what it said? What the angel said? Do not be afraid. As though times of fear were over and the days of hope and joy had arrived. Do not be afraid. These words were not meant for those trembling shepherds only, but were intended for you and me this morning. Yes, to all nations to whom the glad tidings would come. Do not be afraid. Let God no longer be the object of your slavish dread. Do not stand at a distance from him anymore. The word is made flesh. God has descended to live among men that there may be no gulf between God and man. End quote. I love that. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. See, the fear of death has been replaced with hope of heaven for us all who have placed their faith in Christ. And it all begins with that first Christmas when the Son of God took on flesh and became man so that as a man, he might die for sinful men. And these verses first show us that Christmas had to happen because without it, 
there would be no salvation from sin. There'd be no redemption, no justification, no glorification. And secondly, we've seen that without the birth of Christ, there would be no victory over death. We would still be slaves to sin, slaves to our own flesh, slaves to our own lusts, slaves to fear of death, because we would have no future but hell. Now let's look at the third reason this morning in verses 16 through 18. If Christ had not been born, there would be no mediator between God and man. If Christ had not been born, there would be no mediator between God and man. Look at verse 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Verse 16, that's an amazing verse to me. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but do you realize that for the angels, there is no equivalent to Christmas? Yes, our angels participated in that first Christmas, but there's no Christmas for angels. That's what verse 16 teaches. See, the phrase there, translated, give help, should be better translated to take the nature of. See, the Son of God never took on the nature of angels. Therefore, there's no help for fallen angels. In the past, there was a great rebellion where a third of the angels fell with Lucifer And the Son of God never became an angel so that he might redeem fallen angels. No, there is no gospel for fallen angels. There's no redemption for them. There's no plan of salvation for them. There is no hope for their future. There is no forgiveness for angels. There's no mediator between fallen angels and God. There's no substitute for angels. There's no atonement for angels. There's no hope for angels. How the angels must have marveled on that first Christmas at that mystery. And that's why we see later on in 1 Peter, he says that the gospel, it consists of things that angels long to look into. There's no hope for fallen angels. But for the descendants of Abraham, there is help. That phrase, descendant of Abraham, in verse 16, would have been especially meaningful to a letter that's written to Jewish believers, right? But I think the author of Hebrews intends that phrase to go beyond just the physical descendants of Abraham, to refer to those who are Abraham's descendants by faith. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, explains it this way. Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. And so, Christ came to help those he would redeem, both Jew and Gentile, those who through faith would believe in him. So it's all about the incarnation. Hebrews 2.17, it's emphasizing it again. He had to become like his brethren in order to help sinful men. In order to what? Lead many sons to glory. That's why he had to become human. In order to become a final substitute for sinners. The incarnation then, it was not optional in the redemptive plan of God. It had to happen. Because without it, without the incarnation, we would be like those fallen angels. Right? We would be without help, without hope, without God in this world. We'd be alienated from heaven, dead in our sins, blind to the truth, bound in evil, headed for destruction. And so the hope of verse 17 resonates clearly 
against the backdrop of what could have been. And to help us, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become, what, the merciful high priest to make propitiation. That just means the satisfaction of God's wrath. He became the propitiation for the sins of his people to satisfy him. The only way that there could be a true mediator between God and man is if that mediator was God and was man. Jesus is the only mediator because he is the only one who can relate to God as God. And now, and now because of the incarnation, he can relate to us as a human being. Because he is God, he is the perfect high priest. And because he is God, he can make perfect satisfaction, the perfect propitiation for our sins. He can appease God's wrath because he is God. Christ can do that. And he can do what no sinful high priest could ever do. He can satisfy God's perfect standard and pay the eternal penalty because he himself is perfect and infinite. He is God, the son of God, and he relates to his father, God, as God. But notice in verse 18, because he was fully man, he knows what it's like to be human as well. That should comfort you. This is what it says. For since he himself was tempted in that which we, <clears throat> in, uh, for that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Having experienced life on this earth for more than 30 years, the Lord Jesus Christ can relate to us as a sympathetic savior. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to to suffer. He knows what it's like to be human. He can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with our temptations. He can sympathize with our trials and with our sufferings. He can sympathize with our frailties. And yet, as Hebrews 4.15 reminds us, he did that all without sin. Sinless. That means not only can he sympathize with your weaknesses, but he can save you from your weaknesses. Not only is the, he the perfect high priest, he's the perfect sacrifice. Not only is he the sinless mediator, he is the sinless propitiation. He is both judge and savior. He is both creator and redeemer. He is both Lord and our advocate. So by becoming man, the Lord Jesus made it possible for sinners to have access to that heavenly throne of grace. He is the perfect mediator between God and man. And to quote Spurgeon one more time, he said it this way, quote, man became royal when Christ became human. Man was exalted when Christ was humiliated. Man may go up to God now that God has come down to man, end quote. So here's why we celebrate Christmas. Because if Jesus had never been born, we would have no substitute for sin. We'd have no victory over death, no mediator between the holy God and us. Because of Jesus' birth, because of the incarnation, because of Christmas, because we have something that the angels can't even dream of, we now have grace. We now have redemption. 
We now have salvation. We now have sanctification. We now have the hope of glory. We now have a place in the family of God. And we have it all through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the central truth of Christmas is this. God became man and dwelt among us. That is the incarnation. So what if, what if the son of God had never come? We wouldn't have anything to celebrate. We'd be miserable and helpless and eternally damned. And as tragic as that would be, it is equally heartbreaking to realize that even though the son of God did come, even though he did die, even though he did rise again, even though he ascended uh, into heaven and is sitting now at the right hand of the Father, there are still those who refuse to bow the knee in faith and repentance. One day, all who do reject the Lord Jesus Christ will stand before him in judgment. You know, at Christmas time, we remember, we remember and sing songs of him coming as a baby and laying in a manger. But you must remember that Jesus is not a baby laying in a manger anymore. He is currently seated, seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And he will one day come to this earth and he will judge the living and the dead. And so when we celebrate his birth today... It ought to remind us that the, of the reality that he is coming again. And for those of us who do know him and do love him, that is our blessed hope. That Christ is coming again. But for those who reject him in unbelief, this is the culmination of every fear that Christ is coming again. And so when we think about Christmas, it not only points our eyes back into in time, to celebrate his incarnation, but it should point our eyes to the future, looking forward to his return again. We remember that he is coming again. And as believers, we rejoice in that truth. The great wisdom of the gospel was that our Savior was born. And so as you leave church this morning, please just stay focused on what we're actually celebrating today. When you sing Christmas carols, think about the lyrics and meditate on the profound truths that you're singing. When you see Christmas lights, remember that Christ is the light of the world. When you enjoy fellowship with friends and family at lunch today or, or dinner, remember that fellowship is only made possible because we first enjoy fellowship with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you, th when you talk about his first coming... And he was born in a manger. Remember that he is coming again. When you give gifts to others and receive gifts, think about the great gift that God gave this world in his son. And if you've heard nothing else this morning, hear this. Open your ears. God sent his son into the world to become man, to die on a cross as a substitute for sinners, to take the place of all those who would embrace him in faith. And our response should be and ought to be to trust him and to worship him and to marvel at the fact that he did that for us. And then embrace him as your Lord and Savior. That's the command of the gospel. Repent and believe. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for your word. Thank you so much for Christ emptying himself and being made for a little while lower than the angels, all for our benefit and your glory. Christ, you are the, you are the word of the Father, <clears throat> existing for all eternity, through which everything was created, and you were made a baby. The maker of men became a man. The ruler of the stars was weaned as an infant. The bread of life became hungry. The fountain became thirsty. The light of the world became weary and slept. The way became tired by the journey. The truth was accused by false witnesses. The perfect judge was brought to trial by fallible judges. You... Christ, perfect justice, were condemned by the unjust. You who needed no discipline were scourged with whips. You, the foundation, were suspended on a cross. You, life eternal, died for us. So let us be reminded that everything contained in Christmas is only possible through the events that we will celebrate come at Easter time. And more than that, let those facts...